I don't practice, I haven't practiced medicine in a long time. I probably should have maintained some practice because when I think through, I do miss seeing the patient sometimes, but it's been such a long time. I'm not going to go back and do that and reactivate my license. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, friends. David Wright here. I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I am lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Zafar Chowdhury. Doctor, great to have you on. Thank you for being here. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Zafar, for those of our listeners who don't know, can you tell everyone a bit about your current role? Yeah, so I'm the Senior Vice President, Chief Digital Officer, and Chief Information Officer at Seattle Children's here in Seattle. Fantastic. So we'd like to start the episode with just one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today. Well, I would always like to say to people in the current climate that they need to keep hope alive. Because there's so many things happening in the world, economically and in your current business, but certainly in healthcare, that you've got to maintain that positive attitude when you come to work because lots of moving parts, lots of things happening. People are facing lots of different types of stress, mental anguish. So I like to tell my team, keep hope alive. Every day is going to be a better day. So I would like to leave people with that thought. I got my hair stood up a little bit, and I love that. It's so important for me to remember why I work in healthcare, why I want to support healthcare organizations. So that, yeah, that advice really hits home. And and so far, I want to get into a little bit more about the work that you all are up to. But before that, maybe we could start with your personal backstory. So maybe how you started out and how you got to be the renowned CIO that you are today. Yeah, so my story starts in clinical medicine. I started my journey as a physician internist. And along the way, it's my family that wanted me to be an internist. But but early in the 90s, when I was practicing, I was drawn into technology because back then people wanted clinicians to learn about technology. 
So I volunteered to learn about technology. And back then it was pretty much green screen and you had to learn all the keyboard functions. So I got into it and found that, yeah, I thought this is going to be interesting. I think this is going to be powerful as it grows. And over time, I dedicated most of my moving on career in technology and stopped practicing. And so I've worked in many healthcare systems around the world. I've worked in the dot com before it went dot bomb. I've worked on the dark side. So I've worked for Gartner as well, which is a consultancy in IT. And prior to coming to Children's, I've been at Children's for six years, but I've also been the CIO at Cambridge University Hospitals, at Liverpool Women's, at Older Hay Children's, done lots of consultancy with Gartner. So I've had sort of a very interesting ride across the world, seeing different health systems and how they work. And something I've learned over the years is, for me, this is year 38 in healthcare IT, is that healthcare is the same no matter where you are in the world, the only difference really is, is how it's funded and how it's paid for. So that treating diabetes in Dubai is no different than treating diabetes in Seattle. Might be slightly different trade names, but the clinical care protocols are the same. It's just some governments pay for services. Here we have a combination of federal government, private insurance, self-pay. And when you work in Europe, specifically in the UK, it's pretty much 95% government pay and access varies to care. It's quite interesting to having lived and worked in the US for many years that access is still an issue for patients, which you would think wouldn't be an issue if you were actually paying versus the government paying for it. So that's my journey. And so I've seen quite a few things, interacted with many different kinds of people, I'm grateful for my journey because it gives me a different perspective, having worked in so many different places. And now working in pediatrics for a second time, probably the easiest job I've had. Why? Because every day I come to work, I don't have to think about why I do this job. Supporting kids, enabling the care of kids through technology is a very easy mission. Yeah, getting to walk through the halls of St. Jude or Akron Children's or these organization like Seattle Children's, obviously, I've, I've never been to your facility, but there's a palpable energy there of the mission. And so I can just imagine what that's like. And in regard to your experience, kind of in, in healthcare globally, you know, I would agree that the clinical care component and the goal remains the same. But it is interesting to see how those different healthcare entities operate globally. As we were discussing, I just got back from the UK. I met with, you mentioned Alder Hayes. I met with some folks from NHS and then it's embarrassing, but I didn't even realize that there was a private element available in the UK. I thought it was like NHS or bust. And then I came to find that there are the other private institutions that employers can fund for employees. And I met with a colleague who works at a company that pays for her to have private healthcare services. and. She pays upwards of like 50% taxes for nationally funded healthcare and then pays taxes on the private healthcare as well, which I thought was, but I guess it, it is similar kind of no matter where you go. You're going to pay for right. your care in health anyway. I mean, the difference is yes, people will pay upwards of 50% taxes in the UK, but that's over a certain salary threshold. Right. Right. So right. it's still a graded amount that you pay and you pay some of that in your fuel costs in the UK, for instance, as well, to fund social programs. 
But the beauty is that when you do consume the healthcare, you're not left with a bill and you're not looming bankruptcy. Whereas here, yes, you have an employer, hopefully if you're employed, and you will get insurance cover to a level, whether that's 90, 10, 80, 20. And then you still have that out-of-pocket expense that you have to make. And if you're on a really strong salary in the US, I mean, you are paying upwards of 40% on average, high 30s, early 40% as well, but you're still stuck with a bill. And yeah. what's interesting about pediatric healthcare is a any serious condition that affects your child could wipe you out financially. It costs about $250,000 to treat any form of cancer in pediatrics. And your insurance may not pick up 100% of that. So if it picks up 80% of that, you're still stuck with a $50,000 bill, which you may not be funded for. Because how many people have that sort of money sloshing around in their sofa? It's something you have to actively think about. That's not something you find in publicly funded health systems, whether it's the UK or it's Australia. You can be treated. If it's acute, you will be treated almost straight away. If it's elective, you may have to wait to some extent. But you're not going to leave the hospital with the worry of a bill. If your child is sick, it's going to be funded. And it's quite interesting to me here in the US with pediatric health systems that Kids can't fend for themselves. We're supposed to take care of them. And yet, federally, we're not 100% funded for the care of kids. People still have to come up with money. Or most pediatric health systems have programs that assist people who can't pay the bill. But that money is finer. And that's thanks to all the great people, certainly here in the Pacific Northwest, who donate money to children so we can help people avoid those really heavy bills. But what we can't do is we can't pay for people's living expenses when they have to leave their jobs to take care of their kids if there's a long-term condition at hand. So it's a very different lifestyle, even though the protocols are the same. Right. Yeah. And the other thing I thought about is like, we have a PPO and I, I mean, our premiums are crazy and the deductible is super high. So it's Zavars, clearly some amazing experience. What's one of the most important things that you've learned along your journey and personally, professionally or otherwise? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I think as I've taken my journey in the technology space in healthcare, what I've truly learned is it was never about the technology in the first place. It was really about the people and the process and taking a look at workflow, taking a look at how things are actually done before you've come to the answer that you need to buy another piece of technology. Though common sense isn't common in healthcare, and I still see many people jumping to the technology solution. And so when I was a lot younger getting into this field, I also used to think that a technology solution will solve the problem. And now as I'm older and hopefully wiser, I've come to the conclusion that actually, when I now go and talk to a potential customer, because I like to call everybody we serve a customer here, I need to listen and understand what problem are they trying to actually solve? What is the exam question for me to then solve that exam question? And in some cases, it's never about, oh, I need to buy another piece of software or another technology. It's more about, have you thought about doing it this way? versus the way you were doing it. And sometimes that helps. 
So I've certainly learned that over the years that, you know, you want to be a technologist and jump to, oh, here's another tool, or now we're all jumping over AI. Oh, the AI will solve all of this. But sometimes it's just a simple discussion between two people. What is the problem you have? How can I help you solve it? Or how can my team help you look at it differently? Or maybe you already have the tool and maybe you haven't used the tool the way you should. Because if you think about it, one thing, the other thing I've sort of learned in this journey is that we only use about 10 to 15% of the functionality of the software that we buy. Yep. But yet we love buying another application. It's no different than what you do at home. If you have a smartphone, you should be able to do most things on your smartphone. You don't need to upgrade your smartphone every six months just because somebody came out with a new model. Your old smartphone probably does everything you need it to do and can last a lot longer. So that's what I've learned. People and process and change is really hard. Nobody likes to change. So you can propose a whole bunch of things and people will say no. It's that sort of super resistance to new technology. And I've been in technology for a long time. And I would say that even I myself resisted to technology. I used to be a really heavy Android user. And then one day I realized maybe I need to learn about Apple. And then I bought an Apple device. And probably for the first two weeks, I hated myself. I was like, oh, no, this is just so hard. Why is that button? Why do I have to do this? I was so used to doing X and now I have to do Y. I went through that entire cycle every time I change devices or I buy a new laptop. There's that level of frustration. So I can completely understand the users, right? Why the users don't want to change, don't want to resist everything. So change is hard. It is, especially with the health system that's done things a certain way for so long, but really for any organization and cross industries, change is hard. And I was smiling. I mean, I love the lesson. People in process, I consider myself a technologist, but so often I find myself at the epicenter of IT operations, clinical, and really our role is to just be a conduit of conversation, really experts in organizational change management, because we'll often find too that the different folks across the organization have a sense for where they want to go, the ones that want to promote change. And our job is to just translate that into a language that people can get behind and Yeah, I agree. The strongest technology leader in 2023 is not the person who brings 17 new applications to the table, or here's the next generation cool technology. It's the person who can truly understand what the clinicians need and then help them navigate the murky waters that is technology. And that's not something that always happens because It's great if I can talk about the next cool innovation at the next conference. And so sometimes you wake up and think, wow, maybe we should do this. But you get humbled very quickly when you talk to a set of nurses who are trying to manage multiple patients on a shift who tell you, look, you just gave me another device. And I have now, I now have so many devices on my scrubs that my pants are falling down. You need to help me consolidate that. Why do you keep giving me more stuff? Why can't I have less stuff and still do my work? And that really humbles you when you have those conversations because you think, oh, wow, here's the next device. And then you're thinking, no, he or she is right. Why am I giving them more when they don't have enough time as is on a shift and they're overexerted and stretched? So you've got to constantly bring you back yourself back to simple. I like simple, right? Yeah, well, people think 
When people hear innovation nowadays, they automatically go to technology. But that is not the definition of innovation. Innovation does not inherently mean technology. And a simple example, like I, there was a health system and people were having trouble finding their way to pediatric radiology. I forget the exact specialty. But as opposed to investing, they didn't have the money to invest in an expensive wayfinding solution. So they put these colorful arrows on the ceiling that would guide the people to where they needed to go. And that's a silly example, but it, that is an example of innovation. So it's problem, creative solution. So you, you solve the problem in a simple way. It goes back to when I practiced medicine. I used to practice medicine and write everything down on a piece of paper. That didn't mean I wasn't treating my patients correctly, right? I was using my clinical skills and then writing down my findings on a piece of paper. What should happen in 2023 is the same. Use your clinical skills and your experience and your subject matter expertise. And yeah, of course, you don't write it down now. You put it into an electronic medical record, which the patient has access to later. That's great. But that doesn't mean if those systems didn't work, you couldn't practice medicine. And sometimes when you look at the new generation of clinical staff, you're thinking, really, they're really more that technology generation. And clinical skills are still clinical skills. And it's the same thing for a technologist. I might be a technologist, but at the same time, I should have great listening skills and great problem-solving skills. So when I'm sitting with a person having coffee, trying to understand what problem do they have, can I then navigate that problem in the simplest way? The answer to everything can't be another million dollar solution. This is right. why healthcare is so expensive because everybody's like, oh, you need another system and that'll be another $25 million project. When the answer could be as simple as what you described. So let's buy a million dollar wayfinding or let's put neon signs that people can see and follow the arrow and still get to where they need to be to get the care that they need. And that didn't really cost as much. And it was really simple to implement and no real training was involved. And the other thing we always have to think about healthcare when it comes to technology is the entire equity issue, because not mm. every patient we have has access to the smart technologies to download the apps, to use the wayfinding. In pediatrics, 50 plus percent of my patients are funded by Medicaid. That means then don't have great incomes. The federal government helps them with their insurance for their kids. And they don't have the latest version of iPhone times five in their family. So they can download the app that Zaffa's team created, and then they can get from point A to point B. Sometimes a simple map is what they need because that's all they can have. And we always tend to forget that in health technology. You know, you go to a lot of conferences and they're always talking about the next cool innovation. They're always talking about apps. They're always talking about smart devices. They're always talking about, hey, you can measure your vital signs and upload those to your Apple or Android phone. And I'm thinking, what if you work on a farm and you don't have internet access because there aren't any internet access in the farm and the phone that you have is five versions behind on Android you won't be uploading your vital signs in that scenario. You may be writing them down in a book and then bringing them to your clinic visit instead. And people just forget that. And you go to lots of conferences, it's all about, oh, we now have the solution. And AI is an interesting one because all of a sudden, 
everybody's an AI company and AI is going to save healthcare. And I'm thinking, really? Well, you have to train it first and then you have to believe that it's going to be accurate. And then maybe it's going to assist. It's not going to take over clinical care. And the other thing, and I had this, and we mentioned St. Jude before, I had this conversation with Keith Perry because they were doing some really neat stuff with NVIDIA and stuff like that. But the fact that AI too is not a like set it and forget it type thing either. Like you have to continually be maintaining and monitoring and it's not like a software or a tool where you just implement it and now it's good. It's one of those things where you constantly have to have the pulse of that solution monitoring the efficacy, the accuracy, because it develops inherently almost a mind of its own. Yeah. And you have to use your own, if you're a clinician, you've got to use your own clinical judgment as well. Just because you asked an AI how to treat a certain condition and it gave you a list of ways to treat it, you still need to validate that with your own clinical knowledge, right? It can't be a copy and paste job because if you use AI to practice medicine, you are the one that risks your license if the information is either inaccurate, not transparent, or biased in any way. Yeah. And I think people are forgetting that. People think, oh, wow, this is great. I can just copy and paste this. And I'm like, no, you need to look at it, help it guide you, and then apply your own skills and knowledge, whether you're a clinician or whether you're a technologist. Don't just believe it. Even when you're writing code with an AI, if you're a coder yourself, you still need to review that code that it wrote for you to validate it, make sure it's correct, it doesn't have any backdoors in it, and then think about using it versus I'm seeing people just jumping all in. And that worries me, right? Because will that then cause harm? Yeah, it's a real concern. So far, I want to ask about a time that you were, a time that sticks out in your mind as a time that you were challenged or that you failed but you took away a profound lesson. Does anything stick out in your mind that you might be able to share with our listeners? So my most defining moment in my technology career was early in my technology career when I first became a CIO and I worked in a pediatric hospital and I was summoned to talk to a teenage patient and the teenage patient summoned me and I was like very excited to go and speak to the patient. He was a teen. He was suffering from a terminal form of cancer. And the conversation started with, I had ruined his life. And I couldn't understand what that meant. And I said, could you explain why? And he said, look, I'm dying. You can confirm that with my nurses if you want. You're the person who runs technology in this hospital. My father travels for work. He flies around. He's a pilot. He can't be here all the time to spend time with me, but you haven't made it possible for me to interact with my father because back then we used Skype and he's like, Skype doesn't work on this unit because the Wi-Fi doesn't work on this unit. So I have no way of communicating with my father. And then he looked at me and he said, you do know I'm dying. And so what kind of technology person are you then? That was probably the most humbling moment in my career. And that day I learned that no matter what title you have, no matter how powerful you think you are, you aren't. If you're not providing the solutions that assist people, doesn't matter what your title is or how much someone pays you. 
And you can bet your bottom dollar that I immediately made sure that day that the Wi-Fi worked on that unit. Because what good am I if I can't serve the customer that really needs that level of service? And prior to that, I was all proud of myself. Oh, look at me. I've got this high-level job. And after that, I realized I'm just an IT person and my life is based on serving the people, whether they're patients, whether they're clinicians, and making sure that I actually do go and interact and ask people what they need and then provide that. And ever since I learned that from that teenage boy, I've always done that. So even here, being here at Children's, my digital strategy is based on my patient advisory group that we set up, which is wow. parents and smart kids who tell us what we need to build, and that's what we build. And I'm going to tell you, the average 12-year-old kid is smarter than any CIO, including myself. I learned so much from those kids who are native now in that digital space. So that was probably the most defining moment in my life. It was heartbreaking to hear that, but it was more heartbreaking to hear that I was the cause of someone's pain. Wow. I always uh, make sure that I would never do that again. That is impactful. And it just reminds me too, when we talk about consumerism of healthcare, we talk about developing digital strategy, the fact that we're meant to start from the consumer, right? From the patient's perspective. It's not about, it's like that whole Steve Jobs, Apple, when he's giving the talk about, it's not for me to roll out these technology solutions and then say, here, consume or try to sell it to them. It's how can I work backwards from that consumer? And I like how you mentioned before that all these folks are customers, right? So the, my colleagues are customers as well because they're consuming technology. Chani Cordero at one of my events last December, she was mentioning something similar how and you kind of alluded to this before, but, and I, it would just resonated with me, like she'll do rounds in the facility and see and get that feedback from the nurses, from the clinicians firsthand. And then that goes into overarching solution, which I think it's something that I've started doing as a technologist, because it's just, it's so simple, right? But so many people don't do it. And it's hard, right? So if you work in health IT, it's hard to do that because most folks, probably including myself, were introverted. So right. going out and having those conversations, sometimes difficult conversations, is not the easiest thing. It's not the top of the list. But really, we are a service provider as a health IT shop in my organization. So when I ask my team, what business are we in? If they don't say patients, then they shouldn't be working here. Because we're not, I'm not in the business of technology at all. I'm in the business of patients and serving my clinicians. And not every solution is a technology solution. So if you don't listen and you don't ask and you think you know, and you may be driven by the vendor market, then you're going to get yourself into trouble. Because going to conferences, I go to all of them. It's amazing. And you learn a lot about technology. But I've also learned that I don't need all of it. I need some of it. And the other thing I need is partnership with the right people in my business. And that's the secret to success. So you're absolutely right. The patient needs to tell me, hey, Zafa, this is what we need. Can you do that? And I'll be like, yes, if you explain why you need it, so I can completely understand it. And then I can go and ask my teams to how do we solve this? 
that's more fulfilling anyway as a technologist versus hey i saw a really cool technology at the last conference i bought it and now i'm going to shove it down everybody's throats because it just sounds sexy no that's not going to be how technologists need to function in healthcare. They really need to focus on simple, easy to use solutions that bring real benefit. And if it doesn't bring benefit, if you implement something new and it doesn't bring benefit, you need to rip it out and do something else. And we're not good at that either. That's why we end up with application sprawl. We've currently got 1200 applications and I'm like, really, do we need all those? Can we take a look at that? And can we streamline that? And so that's what you've got to sort of think about. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, I want to get into your vision of Seattle Children's. Actually, before we do, just want to ask, I'm actually, I'm really interested to your answer. Favorite book either that you've read recently or all time? Probably the most interesting book I've read, well, it's been a while ago, is a book called The CIO Edge. So early in my career, there was a book called The CIO Edge. I can't remember the author, but it was a very practical way of looking at the role and how you should, a lot of lessons in there about interacting with end users, customers, and how someone should go about setting themselves up for success as a CIO. So I found that a very practical read. I like to read books that provide practical advice versus more so the blue sky vision of everything's great and you've got to think, yes, do you have to think ahead? Absolutely, strategically in your role you do, what are the 10 quick steps to get you to success? It's sort of, if you're a new person in my role, what are you going to do in the first 90 days, 180 days, 365 days? Those are the practicalities that you need versus, oh, we just need to buy a stack of technology. So that's what I found that book to be quite helpful early in my career. I love that. I'm going to check that out. I actually, I recently downloaded an app too. I'm kind of cheating. There's this, I think it's called Headway, where you can extract like the pertinent advice of a given book or literary piece and get that practical knowledge within 15 minutes and then go on to the next one. I'm reading too, but anyway, I agree. I always love when I could take away practical, less Pollyanna and more applicable knowledge. So Zafra, you're at Seattle Children's, you're the CIO. Walk us through, and we've started talking about your vision, but what is your vision for IT and digital based on the overarching mission of the organization? And what are some of the key initiatives that roll up to that? So my team, about 500 people, everything from infrastructure all the way through to digital health and innovation. And over the years, I've focused the team on delighting the customer. So that's really our underlying motto is you have to delight the customer in every interaction you have. And that's been the huge focus. We measure that on NPS, which is an industry standard, the net promoter score. I can tell you that from when I started to where we are, we went and the net promoter score goes from minus 100 to plus 100. We started at minus 24 and now we're at plus 38. So systematically, we've improved our interactions and the way in which people view us in our organization. So I'm always about the core basics first. You've got to get the core basics right. And you can't have lots of digital innovation, and yet your clinician can't get their laptop fixed. I think that's just totally wrong. So we spent the first couple of years focusing on the core basics, 
streamlining those and making it possible for our employees to have a delightful experience. And then in parallel, we spun up the patient advisory group, which meets once a month. And we asked them, hey, what services do you need us to build? And the very first thing that they asked me when I started here, we had a fragmented electronic medical record. We were in Cerner's world for 15 years and patients couldn't get access to the system. I remember a patient coming in to one of the sessions and she wheeled in the records of her child in 12 boxes to show me what her outpatient clinic visit looked like. She's like, my child has a heart condition and I have to carry these records with me because you have not provided a system that where I could just access this in a simple way. That's really eye-opening to the team. So that's, so we made changes based on what that one patient showed us. And we didn't know that till we actually viewed it. It's quite humbling when you see somebody say, hey, my child has been in care for so many years that it's got reams and reams and reams of paper records. Could, isn't there another way you could do this? And you're like, of course there is. So we've driven some of that core basics, built a new electronic medical record. But our huge value proposition over the years has been a huge focus on analytics. How does my team build the tools, the predictive analytics that actually improves decision-making that can help our clinicians? The way in which we run the analytics component is I provide the clinicians, you get an executive sponsor in a specialty, they are provided with the right analytics people, and they then decide what they want to build, not Zaffa, they decide. And if they want to build or solve a clinical problem, the teams, which includes data scientists, which includes programmers, will build it. Example, we have a product we've built that tells us post-brain surgery whether a child is going to have a stroke. And having a stroke post-brain surgery is a common issue. And if you do have a stroke within the first 48 hours of brain surgery, that could be hugely detrimental to your life. So working with the executive sponsor in neurosurgery, he helped my team understand, and then they built algorithms and solutions in analytics, which pretty much now can predict by taking all the feeds of data from a patient post-operatively and pretty much very accurately predict before the patient is going to have a stroke so that action can be taken, corrective action can be taken. And that's huge. Because if it's your child, that's going to have an impact on you because your child's going to be safer and is actually going to have a great chance of leaving the hospital well. If they have a stroke, that's a real difficult situation to have. So that's how we've tried to apply technology. We've done the same in building tools around equity, diversity, and inclusion. We can look at our data in real time and the doctors can use it without really any training. And they can figure out how they're treating patients based on age, sex, race. And if there's inequities, they can make, take corrective actions and then see in real time how their corrective actions are having an impact. And so that's helped. We've been having a strong EDI focus here at Children's for the last couple of years. And it's amazing to see how data can help clinicians change the way in which they think about a patient and how they practice medicine based on the patient's age, sex, and race. And that's another benefit. 
still benefiting the customer, trying to delight that customer. So we try to do things that really make a difference. Our analytics is one of our strongest areas, and that's linked into our digital program. And so for the last five years, we've been doing that. And now we've reached a crossroads where the infrastructure we built for analytics is end of life. And so we're currently halfway through a program to completely take all of our analytics to Google Cloud. And that will give us compute power that we've ever seen before, right? We'll be able to do things on the fly and not rely on when is that infrastructure going to come? When are we going to install it? We'll be able to pivot truly agile moving forwards in that analytics space because we're sitting on a multitude of data. We were able to centralize that. We're able to clean it. Now we're able to crunch it in minutes in the cloud. And that program should complete in the next couple of months, which will then give our researchers and our clinicians a whole different way of being able to access data and manipulate that data in real time. So those are some of the focus areas in the digital space. One of the biggest things patients did ask for was the single front door app. So we built that. They also asked for how do I get from point A to B because it's really hard to navigate your facility. So we built a wayfinding app. So we didn't use the signs. We used built an app. But what we also learned is for those patients who come to our facility who don't have access to the right equipment, we will loan them a device for the day so that they mm -hmm. can get around the building. And that's important because some people do not have the phones that can download the app. So you can request and we can lend you a device and that helps with some of the technological inequities that we see. I love that. I had a thought where in certain communities, maybe it would make sense to set up because that solves the issue right on site, which is fantastic because I don't hear of a lot of organizations doing that. And then when people are out in the community, is there ways we can set up almost like kiosk style type tablets where patients could potentially go to, I just. Yeah, so we've solved that partially. So we also have a loaner program for hope. So if you say, I don't have a laptop, I need to consume telemedicine, we will loan you a device. It's a finite resource. So when we run right. out of devices, interesting enough, people will loan the device consume the visit and bring the device back. But this still, we're still strapped financially to say, you just can't loan everybody a device. And so there's a finite resource, but yeah, I like your idea. How do you build a program in the community where people can borrow things, even maybe a connection with your local library, where people right. can go and borrow a device with their library card so that they know who has it. They can then consume their medical visit and then go back and return the device to the library for the next person to use. Lots of things could be done, but we need more partnership from technology companies. It's healthcare can't be in isolation. I can't do it all by myself. I need people to participate, take some of those big profits and say, hey, let's give some back to the community and help. When I was growing up, the library was everything to me. That would be the point where I would go and use a computer or check out a book because I couldn't afford to buy a book. We weren't really expanding on those programs, though. Yeah, I love that idea. And I love the way that you're thinking about it. And I do hope that more technology companies follow suit. What about some of the biggest challenges you guys are facing as an organization? I know when we, before we went live, we were kind of starting to talk about some of the broader issues facing 
healthcare organizations in general, but what are some of the most difficult things that Seattle Children's is navigating at this moment? Similar to most healthcare organizations, our revenues are strong, but overheads are high. Post-pandemic, the cost of labor, the cost of subscriptions, the cost of software, the cost of hardware, in general, right? Economically, everything has gone up and it hasn't gone up one or 2%, it's gone up double digits. But the reimbursements that we get for the care that we provide hasn't gone up in the same fashion. So we're still getting reimbursed in a pre-pandemic sort of way, but the cost of delivery now is 18, 19% higher than it was, which ends up eroding margins. And if you erode margins, then you have less money to reinvest in the clinical services that you provide. And, and I'm not alone in this. Most healthcare systems are facing these challenges moving forward. So that's our biggest crunch. How do we optimize in a different way so that we can bring some of those overhead costs down? It's really hard though, as a technologist, it's hard for me because I'm always fighting the battle with vendors to not charge me as much as they do when they renew things. But you know, you win some battles and you lose some battles, but there's never been an environment where a technology company has come to me and said, hey, we'd actually give you this subscription at 5% less than we did last year. It's always 5% or 10% more than last year because obviously they have overhead costs too. So that is a challenge. And then that's putting a strain on the healthcare system. And of course, we're coming out of a pandemic and clinical staff have already faced that burnout and even non-clinical staff, right? That's not gone away. Volume of patients is still high. You're sort of going from pillar to post in how you're providing care. So those are some of the pressures. We topped that off with icing on the cake and that's hey, we have to implement something new because something's end of life. Change is also something that I lump on top of that, that icing on the cake, which then puts pressure again on the clinical staff, right? At the end of the day, if you're a nurse and you're managing five acute patients and you're having to learn a new technology that Zaffa's team brought to the table, you're not leaving on time. You might have an eight-hour shift and you'd be lucky if that eight-hour shift turns into a nine-and-a-half-hour shift but you're only paid for an eight-hour shift, that puts a lot of pressure on people. And that's the other side of the non-technology pressures that I'm seeing in my organization, and I'm sure in most healthcare organizations. Where, you know, We are not unique in this space. It's a national thing, if not international. Yeah, it's hard, but yes, common. And we're all trudging the road here. So Zephyr, I have a couple last questions for you. First would be with an understanding that you don't have a crystal ball, what do you think will be some of the biggest changes in the industry as time passes or where do you see the healthcare industry going, trending towards in the future? I think there will be more work on process and workflow in, in clinical medicine. How do you streamline that? How do you standardize and normalize it versus the variations in practice that we have now? In parallel, I think there will be adoption of tools to assist in that. So you can't shy away from the innovation that's coming from the technology sector. How do you automate more? How do you take right. manual processes and eliminate those manual processes? Not, and specifically, not to eliminate people, but to focus people on more meaningful work. That's always been my thought moving forward. So I don't want to implement AI because I need to get rid of five FTEs. I want those five FTEs to do meaningful work 
not the tasks that a computer could do, right? right. Because that's where you're going to drive the real value of the subject matter experts. I don't want somebody sitting there processing medical claims. I want the AI to process the medical claim whilst that claims expert is helping patients navigate their own insurance policies, helping them to get reimbursed, helping them to get the care and approvals that they need, helping them to navigate what I would call a very murky system of health insurance where you, you don't know if you're going to get approved or not. That's where I would use their expertise. So I do see that automation use of AI definitely increasing in a smart way, but in parallel, the clinicians need to think about standardizing the variation in practice by specialty. Five cardiac surgeons in the room practice cardiac medicine in five different ways. That's not going to work moving forward. So that's certainly what I think the future holds, certainly in the, in the short term, the next 18 months to three years. Yeah, that's great insight. I, based on what I've seen, like, yes, we have AI right now and the concerns about it are vast, but health systems haven't even scratched the surface of what's possible with just automation. And automation and AI, as we know, aren't the same thing. So there's a lot there. So I completely agree with you. So Zephyr, last question would be, if you could go back five or 10 years or 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I would certainly say, uh, from a personal note, I would say you should have invested in all the technologies you thought <laughs> were going to take off. But I didn't. So here I am. So that's what I would tell my smart younger self. You should have put money into those things because they would have really paid off. But practically speaking, I would go back and tell my younger self that I don't practice. I haven't practiced medicine in a long time. I probably should have maintained some practice because when I think through, I do miss seeing the patient sometimes, but it's been such a long time. I'm not going to go back and do that and reactivate my license. But I would probably tell my younger self, hey, do half a day a week and still do the technology. And that way you, you stay totally clued in and you get to hold the patient's hand through some difficult times, which is initially, you know, why people become a clinical person. Love that. Well, Zephyr, it's an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Been great talking to you today. Yeah, it was an honor. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and we will catch you all next week. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.